In a book by Brandon Cook called uh, Learning to Live and Love Like Jesus, he makes this um, bold statement. Things cannot be transformed unless they are in the light. That's spiritual physics, like the law of gravity. Count on it 100% of the time. Early in Jesus' ministry, Matthew, who uh, was one of the biographers of Jesus' life, right? Matthew writes that Jesus traveled throughout Galilee. Now, Galilee is a, a rural area that stretches along the west shore and then out to the west from the Sea of Galilee. It's about 78 miles north of Jerusalem. Of course, Jerusalem is where the temple is. It's where the worship happens. It's where God's presence is supposed to be. And so Jesus is, um, and he starts his ministry. In fact, he spends most of his time in this area of Galilee, his three and a half year ministry. Most of his time is spent there. And the reason that's important is because it's about as far away from the temple of God that you can get and still be in, in, in Israel, right, in a part of the uh, Jewish territories. And so Jesus is far, far away from everything that is going on, all of the, the spiritual center, the spiritual hub of the nation of Israel. He's a long ways away from that. And Matthew says that Jesus in Galilee was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So Matthew chapter 4 Verse 23 says, this is what Jesus was doing. And then in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew records Jesus' single largest body of, of teaching. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you've been in church for a long time, if you talk to a pastor or whatever, you hear about this idea of, uh, uh, or this statement of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches a whole bunch of stuff. And, and, and really remember what he's doing is Jesus came to set up, to establish, to start the kingdom of God. And Jesus says that the kingdom of God is not going to be a kingdom of this world. It's, it's, it's different. And so in Matthew chapter 4 at the end, Matthew says he's, he's proclaiming the gospel. He's proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God has started. And then in Matthew chapter 5, in the next several chapters after that, Jesus is kind of laying out the teaching of this new kingdom. Okay? Are you with me? So, you, you know, he's starting this new thing, and he's got to make sure that everybody understands what this new kingdom is all about. And so in, in this series, I say to you, we're looking at Jesus' six shocking statements as he kind of sets the ground rules for his new kingdom, a, a kingdom that is in this world, but is not of this world. And so um, before we jump into the text today in Matthew chapter 5, you can go there in your Bibles or your uh, Bible app on, on your phone or follow along on the, the screen. Before we get to that this morning, let's take a second out and, and pray. Father, um, thanks for being with us this morning. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your presence and preparation this week. And um, uh, Father, like, you know how shocking the things that Jesus said were to the Jewish people 2,000 years ago. And, and the sad part is, even in church today, some of the things that Jesus says are still shocking to us. And um, so, Father, just uh, give us ears to hear today, eyes to see, hearts that are open 
to understand and, and, and help us to, to see the world through, through the lens of your word. Um, that we can get caught up in a, in a lot of cultural, societal, whatever we're told is the moral or ethical thing of the day. But, but you say that your word will stand and it's a foundation on which we can rely. And so help us to do that today and, 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 and help us, God, as we um, just try to look a little bit more like your son today. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin in, in verse 27. And um, if you didn't catch it from that prayer, some of the things that we're talking about today, um, are, they're, they're going to be difficult, okay? They're going to be difficult for us to, to hear in part because of, of what our society tells us is okay or, or, or not okay. Um, and, and we're in this place in our world. This is like, it's, it's, not, it's not new, okay? Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. And, and sometimes in the church, we can get all bent out of shape because we look at the world around us and we go, oh my goodness, you know, the world's going to hell in a, in a handbasket. But guess what? The world's been going to hell in a handbasket for thousands of years. And it's going to continue that way, right? Like before Jesus comes back, we're told in prophecy, it's going to get worse, not better. And, um, and, and so let, let's, just, let, let's just dive in today and, uh, and let God's word uh, speak for what it is, okay? So Jesus says, Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, just last week, Jesus starts off his um, next kingdom statement simply quoting the law, right? Last week, it, it was, um, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And, and pretty quickly, we, we like totally connect that just like the Jewish people that day on the, on the hillside at Bethsaida listening um, to Jesus they would have immediately connected that to, to one of the Ten Commandments, right? Those are the foundational commandments on which the nation of Israel was, was built. And Jesus doesn't really, like, he doesn't get into it, right? And these six statements that he's going to make that we're going to continue to cover over the next four weeks, Jesus just, just goes, here's the law, right? Do, you know, it, it said, don't kill other people for no reason. And today, he, he does the same thing. You know, the law says, don't commit adultery. And everybody knew that. Everybody, like we know that today. We go, yeah, uh, that, that makes sense. You know, that's not a shock. It's not a surprise. Jesus doesn't really get into the issue of marriage and divorce in, in this section here, though, other than just to kind of state, again, what everybody already knew. He is going to talk about it more, and throughout his ministry, he does talk about the issue of marriage and divorce. He talks about it specifically in Matthew chapter 19. You can go look at the headings there to see that. Um, Jesus was able to do in his life what you and I, really, if we're honest, what you and I are incapable of doing. Jesus was able to see the world through the lens of God's word. And instead of like his own wisdom, okay? And, and so for us, it's difficult for us. We look at God's word and we go, okay, that's good. But we tend to look at the world through our own wisdom. 
And, and when our wisdom differs from God's word, we tend to err on the side of our own wisdom or experience or whatever. And, and we'll go, well, I, I know God's word says this, but I really want to do this. <laughs> I, I re, like this is really where I'm, I'm drawn to. And, and so we'll even, we'll even say things like this. Well, I know what God's word says, but this is who I am. And, and, and we'll even go so far as to say, like, God made me, right? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And so all of my personality traits, all of my issues, all of my struggles, like God gave them to me. And, and so instead of, of looking at God's word and kind of holding it up as our standard and going, okay, this is my aim, this is what I should try to, try to, try to shoot for, we go, well, God made me this way, and so God's responsible for me in, in, in this way that I think or the things I do or the, what I'm drawn to, and, and so it's God's fault, and so it must be okay. God made me this way, it must be okay, and so I'm going to just walk in it, right? And so Jesus was able to do what we are incapable of doing. He was able to look at the world around him and filter that through God's word instead of just how he felt or his own wisdom. And when it came to issues of marriage and sexuality, Jesus always went back to pages one and two of the Bible, <laughs> which, which we might, oh, this seems outdated and outmoded and whatever, but every time the issue of marriage, sexuality, gender stuff gets brought up, Jesus goes back to the same thing. And he goes, well, here's what the Bible says. Here's what God said. Here's what Moses said in the very beginning. And so let me just give you a, a kind of a refresher course of, of what Jesus has says throughout Scripture. He, he uh, many times has said, said this. In the beginning, God created Adam and, and Eve. And Adam and Eve stand for, they represent male and female. And even before there were any other humans on the planet, right? It was just Adam and Eve, nobody else, Adam and Eve and, and God, God stated his plan that, that one man and one woman would become one together, right? Through, through the marriage covenant, one man and one woman would become one together. And out of their covenant oneness, this covenant that happens like you get married and you go before a, a preacher, right? <laughs> You go before a preacher. Most people do. And they go before a preacher and they go, okay, we want to be married. We want to be made one. And so out of this covenant oneness, Adam and Eve would bring, would bring um, children out of that relationship. And, and from their oneness, they would create families and neighborhoods and communities. And, and the earth would be filled, right? That was Jesus' plan. He said, fill the earth and subdue it. Recreate. Have children and have babies and make neighborhoods and, and, and cities and, and, and grow and expand. Anything, though, that, that challenges that oneness that, that God set apart from the very beginning, anything that challenges that, T Tim Mackey says it um, this way, anything that distorts or fractures that oneness, God has consistently said that's bad. And, and the word we use, in, in scripture anyway, is, is sin. 
anything that breaks apart, that separates, that fractures that oneness that God intended between Adam and Eve, man and woman, is, it's, it's sin. And, and so Jesus simply restates God's perfect plan. And he doesn't argue it based on the cultural norms of his day or the desires of those more progressive than, than him. He just says, this is the way. But he does help us see that the marriage covenant, that covenant relationship is bigger than just the two people that make it up. In fact, in, in Scripture, um, somehow he says, look, this covenant relationship between man and woman is actually a picture of a greater spiritual truth. That the oneness between man and woman represents the oneness between God and his creation. And it represents, in, in our age today, it represents the oneness between Jesus and his church. And so our marriage relationships are important, not just because that's the way we've always done it, but because it's a picture, it's a symbol of something bigger, something beyond just that covenant relationship between husband and wife. When human sexuality and, and gender issues get twisted, it always stems from our misuse and abuse of sex and sexuality and gender. And the Bible, though, has been consistent and unified from the very beginning. The Bible has never given us any room to, to wiggle or to get out of it. In fact, I think that's why whenever the issue comes up for Jesus, and it came up several times, every time it comes up for Jesus, he goes back to page one and page two. And somebody comes and says, well, what about this, Jesus? And he goes, okay. Do you remember? In the beginning, God created man and woman, and it was good. In fact, it's the only thing he says was very good. It was good, good. It was really good because they were naked and together in the garden. That's, that's good. Okay, you're married. You, you get that. That's, that's good, right? That's, that's good. And so God created it. It's good. And, and Jesus just keeps going back. He keeps going back. He says, you want to talk about it, about today and what everybody else is talking about? I'm going to go back to, in the beginning, God created man and, and woman, and the two become one. They leave father and, and mother, and they become one flesh. And, and so if someone is using Scripture to oppress or subjugate another person based on gender or uh, sexuality or whatever, they are misusing scripture to support their own agenda. Okay? So if we're using the Bible to oppress somebody else because of their gender or their sexuality, we're misusing scripture. Now that does not mean, because I want to be I want to be careful. That does not mean that the Bible doesn't assign roles and duties to specific genders in the world and in the church. It absolutely does. But the goal of that is not to oppress one gender over another. Its purpose is always to make them one together and both better. Okay? 
So, so God's plan for marriage, God's plan for gender roles and identity and all of those things is this. That, that man and, and woman, husband and wife, male and female in the church, in work areas, in life, in marriage, in everything, one together and both better. And so here in verse 27, Jesus just brings up this issue of adultery. You've heard it said, you know that the law says don't commit adultery. Now, in the, in the Jewish culture of, of Jesus' day, honestly, and maybe unfortunately, it's a lot like it was today. Men are at the top. The women were not technically allowed to uh, own property. They couldn't vote. They couldn't speak to a man without their husband present. Okay? Like, that's how rigid it was. If you were a woman, you couldn't speak to another man who wasn't your husband outside of the home without your husband present. And if you were, if you did, I guess it's that way, if you did, it, it wasn't just um, you shouldn't do that anymore. Like it was scorched earth, bad, like the men of that day. If you talked to somebody, they would accuse you of all kinds of things and in fact probably could take your life without much of a second thought. That's the, way it, that's the way it was. In fact, if you remember, maybe you've heard the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. He's walking through Samaria. He meets the woman at the well, and he engages her in conversation. Will you give me a drink? And she's shocked. How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, and a woman to give you a drink? It's why Jesus very quickly moves to go home and get your husband and come back. Because Jesus and this woman, they were, they were breaking the societal norm. We can't have the conversation that, that I want to have with you unless your husband is, is present. Now, Jesus is going to do what Jesus wants to do, right? Um, and, and so he intentionally engaged her in that to bring up her past and, and, and other things. But he, but he says that to, to make, like to give a nod to this societal issue. Like, like, look, I, I know we're not supposed to be, we're not supposed to be talking. Women couldn't make vows. They, they couldn't make deals. They couldn't really do anything of any legal significance without their husband's involvement. And, and I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm clear about this, that, that the way it was, right, this, this was not God's doing. God didn't, didn't say, Men are going to oppress women, and this is how it's going to be. And I, and I know, I know. Sometimes we've gone back to Genesis, and we say, "Oh, well, look, you know, God made man the head, and He made woman uh, subject to Him because because Jesus uh, or God says to to Mary that your desire is going to be for your husband, but He's going to rule you." But maybe we misunderstood what God was trying to say. So the Jewish people on the day that Jesus was speaking to them and thousands of years later, we have perpetuated a patriarchy based on our own failures and shortcomings. But that was not God's plan. It was man's preference. Okay? 
Now, I'm, I'm asking you to do something today that's a little bit difficult. I'm asking you to hold two different things. I'm asking you to be both and instead of one or, okay? But because I, I, I said a few moments ago that there are gender roles and duties that are specific within the church and within the marriage and within society that are different for men and women according to scripture. But that doesn't mean that we're not equal in, in the way God set things up, okay? So we tend to twist things that God says to fit our own agenda. And, and let me just tell you, men, we're really good at that. We're really good at that. Uh, Brandon Cook wrote this uh, again in, in his book, Learning to Live in Love Like Jesus. At the root of all sin is some good longing that gets twisted. The root of all sin is a good longing that gets twisted. And, and, and so our sin, where, where gender and sexuality things are, 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 are going on in our culture and our society and the way we run things, that, that can get twisted from the way God intended it. So adultery is a specific act of sexual intimacy with someone who is not your spouse. If you are married and you sleep with someone who is not your covenant partner, that's adultery. And the vast majority, if not every person there that day who was listening to Jesus, would claim that they were innocent of that sin, right? Like if Jesus just stopped and said, okay, raise your hand if you've committed adultery, nobody would have raised their hand. And they, they wouldn't have raised their hand because they were embarrassed, right? They would have not raised their hand because they didn't believe they'd committed adultery. And I think part of the reason that they, that they thought that um, was because adultery carried with it the punishment of death. If you commit adultery, you could be taken outside of the city, outside of the camp, and killed. That's how serious that covenant marriage relationship is to God. And so while virtually um, none of the thousands of people there that day would admit that they had committed adultery based on the letter of the law, the men who were listening to Jesus had a practice of just divorcing their wives for any and every reason. And sometimes the reason was they really just wanted a younger, stronger model to help with the work. That's really what it was. So, so they would have said, yes, adultery is evil and it's bad and I have not committed adultery, um, but I'm on my fourth wife because I keep trading them in. I, I don't, this one makes me upset. This was, see, so, so men had absolute authority in that day. They could do that. In fact, Moses, the, the law, you go back to the way it was and, and they could just say, just give your wife a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. So they understood the law, they knew the law, they just didn't think they were guilty of breaking it. And so just like Jesus did with the issue of murder that we looked at last week, Jesus simply restates the law and, and he leaves it. Here's the law. You know it, de deal with it. Like this is just the way it is. He gives no commentary, he takes no questions, and he gives no caveats. The law straight states, 
no adultery. And everyone, including every, <laughs> uh, every man with a younger woman on his arm that day, would have been shaking their heads in agreement. Yes, don't do that. And then just like um, in the anger issue, Jesus, um, Jesus kept, kept going. Where am I? Okay, verse 28. Here's what it says. So, adultery is bad. That's what Jesus says. Then he goes on. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And every person there that day did exactly what all of us would do. Wait, what? <laughs> what, what did he just... Did I hear him correctly? Did he just say that if I look at a woman who is not my covenant partner, and I look, you know, lustfully at her, woo, you know, you know, you know, you've either done it or you've experienced it probably some point in your life. If I look at a, at a woman with some lustful intent, um, it's the same thing as having sex with her. Is that what Jesus just said? I mean, that's certainly what the crowd thought that, that day and, and you can imagine pe people gasped they begin to have conversations one with the other that, that fall I mean, all, I mean it was just like it erupted I'm sure when Jesus said that people talking what is in the world and I, I'm sure there are a lot of men that got elbowed in the ribs right then when that was said uh, a lot of women were clapping and cheering you know they're going yeah keep it going and the men are going shut up be quiet <laughs> like it was like Chaos in that moment is a pretty tough pill to swallow, right? If you even look at a woman with lust in your, in your heart, you have already committed that act with her. It's a tough pill to swallow. So it's a good time to remind ourselves um, what is most important to Jesus. And so we're going to jump to Matthew 22 and look at a few verses there. The Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus. They're questioning him. They're trying to trap him. They say, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, this is not really a trick question because everybody knew the greatest commandment in the law it was called the Shema. They repeated it every single morning and every night before they went to bed. And so what they were doing and they're trying to trap Jesus is they're really just trying to say, because remember we talked um, last week about how the people thought that Jesus was trying to abolish and do away with the law. He said, I haven't come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill the law. This was part of that law, this command, honor God and serve him only, right? It's the very first commandment and and so um this was part of that so they were trying to ask jesus are you going to tell us that the most important thing is something different than than what moses said than what god said to moses and so the, here's jesus response he said to them um you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind this is the great and the first commandment and every one of them would have been right there with jesus he's exactly right this is the shema at least it's a portion of it. It's what they recite. It is the law. Love God with everything that you have. It's the first and great commandment for the Jews. But then Jesus, just like he does in Matthew chapter 5, he like tacks on this thing. It's like, here's the law, and then I say to you. And so that's kind of what he's saying here. He's saying, I, I say to you, 
that you also should love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the, and the prophets. Again, go back to last week. The law was the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is called the Torah, uh, uh, the Pentateuch. They, they, that was the covenant law between God and his people. The rest of the Old Testament was what they called the prophets. It was all the rest of the stuff and how God interacted with his people and was leading them to, to himself. And so Jesus says... If you love God and you love other people, the other 613 laws that you find in the Torah are are fulfilled. You can obey those 613 laws if you just love God and love others. Okay, so that's what he's saying there. Here's what Jesus is trying to help us um, understand. That, That being a part of the kingdom, being a part of the kingdom of God, it's not about behavior modification. It's about life transformation. The the Jews had gotten in this rut where they thought the law was just about modifying my behavior. And this is how they modified their behavior. They didn't stop sinning. They just added sacrifices. So, I commit a sin, maybe I commit adultery. And uh, on Saturday, I go to the temple and I offer my sacrifice for adultery. And next Wednesday, I look at a woman and I go, ooh. <laughs> and then next Saturday, I go to the law and I offer my sacrifice for adultery. So it did modify their behavior. It just didn't do anything with their heart. It didn't change their heart. They continued to sin. They just added sacrifices On top of that, Jesus isn't just concerned with the act of adultery, being sexually intimate with someone who's not your covenant partner. He's asking, what is going on in the heart of a person that leads to that? You see the difference? It's not just about behavior. It's about what's going on in the heart. Let's go to verse 28 of chapter 5. Again, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart. I I want you to consider just for a moment what Jesus means by the term lustfully. But but first, before we get to that, let me um, make sure that we're uncomfortably on the same page, okay? Because I realize... Sometimes the things we talk about are uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, There is nothing wrong with sexual passion or sexual desire. God created it. God made it. It's beautiful. He called it very good in in the in the beginning. It's it is good, and it's it's from God. In fact, there's a it's so good (laughs) that there's a whole book devoted to it in the Old Testament. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Song of Solomon, that's right. Song of Solomon is a whole book devoted to this. And and there's a lot of people that are going to say, well, um, look, the the Song of Solomon is a metaphor, blah, 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 whatever. But do you know what it really is about? (laughs) Um, It's about two young people, man and, and woman, who are moving toward covenant relationship. And in that book, they're talking about all the fun they are going to have 
once they consummate, consummate their, their marriage. That, that's what it's about. Um, in, in fact, it's a pretty great book. Uh, and if you ever have date night with your spouse, pull it out and read from some of <laughs> Song of Solomon. <laughs> yeah, uh, let, yeah. let me just tell you, it is, it is not, um, what, what's that? Uh, let's, it's not PG, let's just say that. There's some really good stuff there. So if you haven't spent any time in Song of Solomon yet and you're married, look, do not go to Song of Solomon if you're not married. Just don't do it. It's not be good for you. That will lead you someplace else, and Jesus is going to deal with that later. Um, but uh, if you are, go use it. it, it, it it's good. But, but listen, in chapter 8, verse 6 of uh, Song of Solomon, they're talking about love and this idea of love, covenant relationship love. And, and they relate it to a blazing fire. L- l- I, brought a, I brought a candle. I brought a candle for two reasons. I like candles. Um, also, uh, my friend Pam uh, brings me candles, and I like uh, cinnamon candles um, specifically. So I like that um, scent. Anyway, uh, so candles are, are good. Uh, fire is good. And when, and when fire is um, contained, it is good. It's, it's, it's beneficial. I, I like, um, I, I have this problem with my wife because I like candles and I like scented candles. Um, Andrea walks in because I light them when, she, you know, she's got to put it in the office or whatever. And then she comes in the house and she goes, oh, what is that smell? <laughs> she's overwhelming. She is a very sensitive smeller. Um, and so I got to blow it out whenever she comes in. So, so that doesn't work. So I have unscented candles in the bedroom. Okay, so uh, Song of Solomon, people, Song of Solomon, it's okay. In the circle, it's all, it's all good. Uh, fire is, is good when it's contained, it's good, it's beneficial. And you can, you can take this flame and you can put it in a, in a stove and you can cook on it and you can make food that sustains you and, and you can do all kinds of, of good things with you. Fire keeps us warm and it and it feeds us and it does a whole bunch of good and beneficial things the sun is a ball of fire right a fire is is good as long as it's in in its boundary but when fire is uncontrolled when, when fire breaks out of its boundary even something as small as this little little flame that doesn't seem to be that big or that capable of doing much of anything if it's left alone and if it's uh, left close to some combustible material like your home can just go up like how many homes are destroyed every year because somebody lit a candle and some horrible evil satan cat knocked it off the ledge so like like fire is good fire is good but, but there is a, a way, there's a case, there's a, there's a point in which fire becomes bad, right? Adultery is an action that is a symptom of a deeper issue of sexual desire within us, and we call that desire lust. And, and we cover it up by saying things like, <laughs> uh, I can look as long as I don't touch. 
But the touching part always starts with the looking. But I want to make sure, again, we're clear. I feel like I've said that a bunch of times this morning. We need to make sure that we're clear. The term here that, that Jesus uses in, in the passage, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, the, the term there might be better understood um, if, if we were to say uh, stare or leer or gawk. Jesus isn't saying that if you, if you notice a beautiful woman, that's it, you're guilty, you're done. What he's saying is if you notice and you stare. And again, you, you've probably either done that or been on the receiving end of that maybe in your life. And so you know what that's, you know what that's like. Um, Jesus is saying when you can't look away, when you dwell and, and, and so here's um, what's happening in the, those moments. We're playing a movie in our mind that objectifies and abuses the other person without their consent or in some cases, in many cases, maybe without their knowledge. And so in our, in our minds, in our hearts, we're, we're saying, um, to the other person, you exist like you were placed here on the planet for my benefit and my pleasure. And how you feel or what you want doesn't matter to me at all. So when I'm staring, when I'm leering, when I'm gawking at, a, at another woman, I'm saying you exist for my benefit and, and pleasure. That sounds to me as though I'm number one. My benefit, my pleasure, my wants, my desires, that they're more important than anything that you might want. Tim, Tim Mackey said this action can be summed up like this. Other people exist so that I can gain pleasure from their body parts. So you might be asking, um, why is what I think about or what I do in the privacy of my own home or in the safety and security of my own mind a big deal right we'll say it like this as long as I'm not hurting anybody why is it a a, a big deal well last week we talked about murder and we said that murder starts in the heart before it ever gets to the hands and, and sexual sin, sexual sin starts in your mind before it ever, I, I'm trying to be careful about how I say this. Sexual sin starts in your mind, not your members. And that's a little crass, and, and I understand that. I think my mother-in-law is working in kids' church, so... but you know what I'm talking about. If you're, a, if you're a man, at some point in your life, you have, you have blamed your body 
for your actions or your thoughts as though you had no control. Jesus wants us to understand that adultery is not just a violation of a law. It points to a deeper, darker issue of the heart. It's not about the other person's good or benefit. It's about using their body parts for my benefit. And it is not loving toward them at all. So remember, we go back to Matthew 22. What are the two greatest commandments? Jesus basically puts them side by side. Love God and love others. But, but lust is not loving towards another person. Uh, throughout, every, uh, throughout human history and virtually every tribe and tongue and nation. Um, th this is a question and, and you can kind of um, answer it <laughs> with me. Throughout every tribe, tongue, and nation, which gender has routinely turned sexual desire into a tool of violence, subjugation, and oppression against the other gender? Which one? Men. Yep, absolutely, 100%. We, we do it, we got to own it, right? We have done that. Just eight generations after Adam and Eve, when you could still see the Garden of Eden and the flaming sword and the angel standing there, a guy named Lamech, Cain's offspring, seven generations um, from Cain, began to collect women like property and assert authority over them and um, assert authority over them through fear. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 4. What we see here in Matthew is that Jesus is not just trying to legislate morality like the law did. Don't murder, don't commit adultery. Jesus was launching a new kingdom. He was beginning a new humanity. He was creating an alternate society. And what he was saying to a patriarchal, male-dominated society, uh, the Jewish culture at the time, is that his kingdom must be a safe place for women. Look at the cultures of the world. Some of the most seemingly spiritual and morally pious religions in our world today, look to the Middle East, are not safe for women. And maybe you've heard that a, a bully's prey is almost always the easiest target. The one who won't or can't or is stopped from fighting back. Christianity, I think in some ways, has become that target. Christianity is attacked where the issue of gender and sexuality is concerned. We're attacked because we're told that our views of, of, of sex and sexuality are outdated. When in fact, Christianity has the most loving response to those issues of any religion in the world today. And it's loving because the truth is presented. Not a truth that legislates morality, you have to do this, but a truth that is balanced with grace. You are loved, regardless of your 
choices and what your decisions are and, and how you feel. You are loved, but you are not left to your personal desires. You are, you are pointed, like all of us, to discipleship, where we learn to look more like Jesus every day. We got to get to the end of this. Here's the next few verses. Okay, Jesus says this terribly shocking thing, right? Don't commit adultery, but if you even look at a woman, which we know he's talking about gaze, leer, stare, you've committed adultery. You've committed the act with her in your heart. Then he goes on and he like goes, buckle up, right? And forgive me, mom. Jesus is like, hold my beer, okay? Because what he says next is like, like rocket ship through the moon. He goes, look. This is how serious this issue of, of lust and stuff is. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, whack it off and throw it away. It's better to go to heaven without an eye or without a hand than to burn in hell. <laughs> and, and once again... Once again, our response is the same as those standing on the hillside listening to Jesus. And we're like, what? What did, he say? what did he say? Surely he can't mean that. Surely Jesus does not want us to go to the kitchen drawer, dig out a spoon, and pluck out our eyeball. Uh, you probably couldn't do it with a spoon anyway, because contrary to popular belief, this is for our graduates um, here this morning, eyes are not round. They're cylindrical. So they got to pull them out. Let's get a little grosser here. Okay. Um, <laughs> don't think for a moment that Jesus was advocating self-mutilation. That is not a legitimate way forward in dealing with the uncontrolled sexual passions and desires. If Jesus was really advocating cutting off a body part so that you didn't lust, he missed a body part in his list. Okay, but I think that just proves that that's not what he's talking about. It's not about our body parts. It, it's, about our, it's about our heart and a heart that harbors sin. Um, so, so check this out. Did, did it seem odd to anyone else that Jesus says specifically the right eye or the right hand when he, when he mentions this? Tear out your um, right eye throw it away does that seem odd like why would he why would he do that why would he be specific about the the right hand well uh, let me just um tell you that other places in scripture we we see this so in 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 some ways jewish history jewish poetry in the psalms and the proverbs some other places um moses when he anointed the high priests for service in the temple he would put the blood of the sacrifice on the right earlobe the right thumb and the right big toe and so what we see is that the right eye is representative of how we see the world. And the right hand is representative of how we act in the world. And the right foot represents our life path in the world. But it gets even deeper. Here's how Tim Mackey says it. I think it's great. If there is something in your life that seems indispensable to you, like your eyesight or your hands. We use those every day, right? They're kind of important. 
If there's something that seems indispensable to you that feels like it's actually a part of you, let it, yet it's leading you to sin and ruin, Jesus says, cut it off. If there's something so woven into your being and your personality and how you live in the world that you feel like it's a part of you and, and you say, well, this is just who I am, like a hand or an eye, but it's destroying you by constantly leading you into ruin and down a dark hole in the area of sexual desire, Jesus says, cut it off. Get rid of it. Do it quickly. Do it swiftly. Be decisive. Don't waffle. Kill it dead. Because if you don't, it will consume you. Sexual desire is not bad. But it, when it is not in the circle of covenant relationship, it is a monster that will consume you. It can and it will ruin every one of your relationships. And some of us in this room today, or maybe watching online, know exactly what that's like. Because either last night or early this morning, or when you get home after church, you are going to experience that. And it, and, it, and it might not be your hand or your eye that's the problem. It might be your smartphone. Because we have opportunity to look at things 24-7 right there. And, and maybe your act of cutting that off is that you ditch your smartphone for a dumb phone, which would stink, right? Going back to the Nokia brick, <laughs> where you got to press the numbers to get to the letter that you want to use in your text, that would be horrible. It would almost feel like you'd cut your hand off. This is serious to Jesus. And today, maybe you need to take his advice seriously. Because you've let that sexual desire run free in, in your mind and in your life. And it's time to cut it off and to cut it out. Don't, again, like, just, just remember, I don't want anybody going home and cutting themselves. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying if there's a part of you that, that sexual desire for things that, that you know God says are a sin and you've spent time seeking them out and searching them out in your heart, Jesus says you've got to get rid of that. And, and look, I'm a, I'm a man. I've been there, know what it's like, it's tough. God says this is a heart issue. And if you've let that run wild like a fire that has been set free and uncontained, you've gotta take decisive action and you've gotta cut it off. And so maybe it's trading in your smartphone for a dumb phone, maybe it's 
cutting your internet off at home or cutting it off in the evening or, or letting your wife or your husband set a password up on the internet or on your phone that you don't know the code to. Maybe it's cutting those premium premium channel, those trash channels uh, on your cable subscription so that you're not even, like you can't go to them and watch. Be decisive. Uncontrolled sexual desire and passion will kill every relationship that you have. But containing sexual passion and desire in the covenantal relationship of marriage between one man and one woman who are one together and both better actually frees you to enjoy relationship with others on a deeper and more personal level. Walking according to God's word instead of our own wisdom, it's hard, but it's also helpful. It's helpful to your marriage, to your future, to your relationships, and to your walk with Jesus. And, and this is one of the beautiful things about communion how we approach the bread and the cup in communion is kind of a picture of how we approach God. Not in perfection because we've done all the right things because we haven't. But recognizing that we're a work in progress as we're striving and often failing to look more like Jesus every day. So how we live in the kingdom is important because to others, to others outside of the kingdom, how we live expresses who Jesus is. And when we take the bread and the cup, we remember that Jesus was always for others. He loved first and he loved fiercely. And so we come to communion, not as perfect people, but as kingdom people called to love others as Jesus loved us and not just to work at behavior modification but to allow the Holy Spirit within us to bring about life transformation. And that happens when we surrender to God's way of living, or let's say it another way, when we die to ourselves so that we can live to him. So the band is going to play the last song, and we just want to give you the opportunity now that we've uh, addressed <laughs> kind of this issue um, we want you to know that God loves you. And, and if this is something that you're dealing with, man, sh share it with somebody. Um, and, and get free of that. C cut it off. It'll be difficult, but it'll be better. And the awesome thing about God is that, look, Scripture says, while we were still sinners in the midst of our sin, even sexual sin and desire and lust and all of those things, Christ died for us. And so we take communion not because we're perfect, but because we want to make progress towards God as he works through the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so as the band plays, we've got stations set up on the side. If you're a believer in Jesus today, we want to invite you to take communion with us. The bread representing the body of Christ and the grape juice representing the blood that he shed to pay for our sin, even our sin this morning, the last night, Friday, this week, and our sin coming up. And so that we might be a part of that and we might commune, we might be in that unity relationship, that covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So let's pray and as the band plays, feel free to take um, 
communion, and, and then when that's over, you're free to go. There's some information out in the front of the lobby about um, softball, if you want to do that. Um, and uh, I think we've got cake and stuff for um, communion, if you want to hang out, at, or for uh, our graduates, if you want to hang out. Cake for communion sounds pretty good, too. Um, but uh, if you want to hang out afterwards and congratulate them a little bit. Okay, let's pray. God, thank you for loving us even when we are so um, unsorted in our, our lives. And, um, and God, thank you for not neglecting the difficult things, but calling us to better things. Uh, in fact, the, the new kingdom that Jesus set up through his sacrifice and, and forgiveness, the new kingdom is all about calling us out of this world um, and, the, and the way that, that we live, the, the morality or the ethics of this world and calling us in to something better and more lasting. Uh, thank you for the way that you have designed our, our, our world and our lives and our relationships and, 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 and marriage. And, and Father, help us to honor that um, and hold it in high esteem as, as you do. And... Uh, Father, even in the midst of our sin, we just we come to you in this time. We take the bread and the cup together as um, as your family, and, uh, and and God, we just thank you for loving us as as your children. And so bless our time and this week, Father, in Jesus' name. Thank you. 
Thanks for tuning in to Real Life Live. Our hope and prayer is that the time you've spent with us has left you encouraged and challenged in your faith. It may have also left you with some questions or maybe wondering how all this faith stuff works. So we want to help you with that. Head over to reallifecc.us for a few different ways we can connect. We're thankful you joined us today and want to extend an invitation for you to join us in person at our current home in El Dorado, Kansas at the Civic Center, 201 East Central on Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope you'll keep tuning in and growing in your faith to look more like Jesus every day. See you next time.